Hi there. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Arthritis Life Podcast, where we share arthritis life stories and tips for thriving with autoimmune arthritis. My name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis beyond joint pain. I've been living with rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years, and I'm also a mom, occupational therapist, video creator, support group leader, and I created the Room to Thrive self-management program. I am so excited to help you live a more empowered life with arthritis. We're going to cover everything from kitchen life hacks to navigating the healthcare system to coping with friends who just don't get it. Seriously, no topic is going to be off limits on this podcast. My interviewees and I share our honest stories of how chronic illness affects our lives. This includes discussions about mental health, sex, shame, pregnancy, body image, advocacy, self-acceptance, and so much more. You'll hear stories from all ends of the spectrum, from a person who's living in Medicaid remission from psoriatic arthritis to somebody living with severe mobility restrictions and severe pain from rheumatoid arthritis. You'll hear how people manage their conditions in different ways, like medications, mindfulness, movement, social support, work accommodations, and so much more. You'll also hear from rheumatology experts who just get it. We'll dive deep into the science behind chronic pain and what's the latest evidence for lifestyle changes that can help you thrive with arthritis, including exercise, sleep, nutrition, stress reduction, and more. This is your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. I'm so excited today to have Corey doing with me. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here today. Awesome. Can you just let the audience know real quick, a few basic information, pieces of information about you, like where you live and what is your relationship to the arthritis community? Yes. Well, Cheryl, as you know, I'm from Washington. I'm nearby. Um, I actually am a rheumatology nurse practitioner. I've been doing this almost 20 years now. Um, I actually live north of the city. Um, I am currently employed at the University of Washington. I teach in the doctoral program for the nurse practitioners, and I also have a clinical practice at the Seattle Arthritis Clinic. Um, my, My my introduction to rheumatology was that while I was finishing my master's way back when um, I had one of my professors uh, was involved in rheumatology and that's where my research was heading. Um, Additionally, I have a mother with rheumatoid arthritis. Um, She's had it for many, many years. And so Whereas for many people, the immunology and the science and the medications and all the complexity of rheumatology was very intimidating to them. For me, it wasn't. It felt comfortable. It felt like home. And so when a position became available that had other nurse practitioners in the practice, I uh, jumped at it. And that's where I started. And I've been here ever since. Oh, that's incredible. And you know, before we go further, I do want to address your profession in general, because I think there is a lot of confusion. There's so many different kinds of nursing out there in different degrees. So can you tell me what does it mean to be um, an, a nurse practitioner? And when you see the, des- like when I, as a patient, see the designation ARNP, what does that mean? Right. So that is absolutely confusing. Um, so ARNP stands for advanced rheumatology or sorry, advanced <laughs> 
<laughs> advanced registered nurse practitioner. Yes. Um, and in our state, in Washington state, that is our official licensure designation, and it varies state to state. So sometimes you see it um, simplified just as NP, because that's classically what we're known as a nurse practitioner. Um, additionally, um, our, our degrees differ a little bit as well. So I have a master's degree in nursing. And then I went back when it became, when it, when the degree, the doctor of nursing practice, DNP became um, an available option and received my uh, doctorate degree. Um, it's confusing for patients. I think this is a big question that always comes up. Do, should they call me doctor doing? Should they call me nurse doing? Should they call, what should they call me? And, you know, typically I, I like to be called just, just Corey. And in fact, for this communication, you and I know each other on a first name basis, and that's by far the easiest and the most comfortable for me. Um, I don't have to correct patients if they call me doctor doing, but I typically do just so that they know that I am a nurse practitioner. Um, when I teach, when I lecture, sometimes I'm referred to as Dr. Doing, and that's fine, but I'm most comfortable with Corey. And I think that most nurse practitioners are, feel the same way about that. That's, that's really helpful to hear because I mean, even you might be surprised to hear this, but in the occupational therapy world and physical therapy world, there is a, a lot of, there are a lot of different opinions about, you know, whether if you have a clinical doctorate, cause you can have a clinical doctorate in occupational therapy. And it's actually the entry level position for physical therapists is DPT now doctorate in physical therapy. But I personally, I don't, I think it can be confusing to patients to, if everyone's suddenly using the word doctor, I mean, you should be recognized. I think academically, like you said, I think that makes perfect sense. But I think especially like, um, in the fields where we are not licensed to do anything that, uh, that overlaps with the medical doctors versus for ARNP, it is, it's even more murky because at least in, in Washington state, you as an ARNP advanced, you know, registered nurse practitioner, you can <laughs> prescribe, diagnose, right? And act. Yeah, yeah, we're fully autonomous in the state of Washington. We don't practice under um, a physician's license. So there is that question. And typically, you know, I leave it up to individual nurse practitioners and what they want to do and what their practice is like. Um, but absolutely recognizing the fact that, you know, we have these degrees is important um, because as you know, we've spent a lot of time, a lot of years in our education, preparing ourselves, plus our practice before nurse practitioners go back to school. They have years and years of nursing under their belt as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. My sister is a um, NICU nurse right now going wow. back and studying further. So yeah, I know. Um, yeah. I have the utmost respect for, for everyone in the nursing profession and just just to be really clear in the rheumatology setting, mm -hmm. um, you know, what is the nurse, rheumatology nurse practitioner's role? And uh, what are some things you want patients to know about what you yeah. do? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. What we know about the care of patients um, who have rheumatologic conditions, um, we know that that interdisciplinary care or interprofessional care or care of the full team is what really does help to get the best outcomes. It's not just one person dictating this is what you do and that's it. It's much more complex than that. And, and you out of anybody has a has a has the best understanding of the complexity of that. Um, so as nurse practitioners, I play a part as one of those team members. Um, uh, I, I'm there just, again, 
as needed. I, I have the ability to do a number of different things. And my job, my role varies day to day, um, has varied in the different positions I've held as well. Um, but but just know that, you know, we, we have the ability to prescribe you your medications, to order labs, to order, um, to order imaging as needed, um, to interpret those tests, to help you understand what they mean, to help you make decisions about your, your treatment, to understand your disease. You know, ultimately, at the core, we're nurses. That patient education is truly what drives us and, and helping patients to really understand their conditions and diseases is what makes our day. That's, that's wonderful. And like music to my ears, of course. And are the, like, are the appointments structured? If you were my, um, you know, nurse practitioner, Mm -hmm. that was my primary rheumatology. Would you act in the same way as my like rheumatologist currently acts in the sense, Mm -hmm. like everything you just said is kind of what my rheumatologist does. Do you have the same length of visits? Or do you get longer? Do people you know, get longer with you? <laughs> I, you know, I wish I would love to be able to say that they get longer with us. And certainly in some of my prior positions, that's been the case. I think it really just depends. Different, different physicians have set up um, different schedules for themselves. They may have certain lengths of visits for, for them, which may be different than the colleagues that they work with. And I think the same can be said for nurse practitioners. Um, you know, I have a lot of flexibility in my scheduling, which is fantastic. But unfortunately, with the workforce shortages that we are running into, I'm becoming much more busy than I ever have been in the past, too, which limits my availability. I wish I could be there in an unlimited amount of time to work mm-hmm. with patients. Well, and that's one of my talking points for why uh, we need multidisciplinary teams, because, you know, the average I mean, this is good, not to be like, I'm selling occupational therapy, but you know, our <laughs> visits are usually 50 to 55 minutes and that's just the default, right? And it's shorter, like in acute care, sorry, I just hit my microphone in acute care. It will be shorter, you know, 15, because the patient may not be able to have the stamina to do a longer appointment, but typical like outpatient, you know, if you're coming in for fabricating a splint or getting patient education and support for activity pacing and, you know, adaptations, life hacks, you know, we have almost a full hour. So, you know, and the same with physical therapists. So again, just knowing that there are other professions, I know this a passion both of us have is like making sure people know that you don't, you don't have to manage everything on your own, you know? Yeah. And if you've left an appointment and there's still questions that remain, there are other people out there as part of your care team who can help maybe approach it in a different way um, to answer your questions. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of that questions, one of the things we tend to have, or, you know, I'm speaking again, both as a patient and provider, I think one of the hardest things, um, it is just making decisions, like making medical decisions. So speaking of that, like one of the hardest things for me has, as a patient has been making difficult medical decisions or even just, um, weighing the pros and cons, because it seems like sometimes the pros and cons of different treatments are almost like endless. Like it's almost like a choose your own adventure, but you don't know what's going to happen. Right. So you're like, turn to page 13. If I have a side effect of methotrexate or, you know, and so, um, you know, yeah, the first, the first thing most people struggle with when it comes to, you know, managing rheumatic disease is, um, when it comes to difficult decisions is the medications. So how do you help people assess like risks of, for example, taking the medication versus the risks of 
untreated disease or undertreated disease. Right. You know, it, that is, that is the struggle. That's, that's the hardest thing, but also the most fulfilling thing about what I do. Um, shared decision-making is an important part of rheumatology practices. Patients need to truly understand their disease and the treatment options that are put forward to them, but it is complex. It would be the most complex choose your own adventure book that you could ever imagine, right? When I started in rheumatology 20 years ago, we had three biologics um, and they were all in the same category of medications. And that's really what we had. And then we had some, you know, regular, um, or we had the, the disease modifying drugs that we could kind of uh, add in. It was a cocktail, so to speak, of different things for each person but it was not nearly as complex and there were not nearly as many options as there are now available for our patients. So I guess, I mean, there's so many things that we could talk about here. I guess the, the, one of the most important things to think about is, is what questions we as providers need to get answers to so that we can help you determine which medication might be best for you. So, when you see a rheumatologist or a rheumatology nurse practitioner and you're preparing for that visit, um, some of the things that you should think about beforehand would be make sure that we have um, your most up-to-date medication list, um, including any supplements that you might be taking. And most importantly, not just how they're prescribed, but how they're being taken. Um, also, um, you may want to make sure that we know your full family history because that may impact risks of different therapies. We need to know your past medical history thoroughly, including any surgeries you've had or you know, even anything that's happened between the visits from the time that we saw you last till now. We need your updated labs. We need any imaging that's been done recently. All of these things go into um, us understanding um, which medication may be the best for you. Um, there's, there's some great forms that have been put out by the National Institute of Health, by the National Institute on Aging. And I think I talked to you about these forms. They're just a great guideline. They're worksheets. Um, and you can find it on their website, the um, www.nia.nih.gov um, slash health slash TWYD dash worksheets. So one is family history. Another is a place for you to document um, what questions to talk to your doctor or provider about and some ideas about what types of questions you should be asking. Um, a place to document any changes that have happened since your last visit. Um, That's so great. I'm definitely going to put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, concerns you may have and then medications. And these are forms, I don't know that I necessarily would recommend them for every patient, but it's a great way to think about how you're approaching your visit. Um, specifically, when we talk about how to, to advocate for yourself, when you're thinking about um, which medications are options, you want to make sure that you do a little bit of homework beforehand. Um, you may want to, you may know going into the visit what therapy your provider may be thinking of would be the next step. Um, and looking at that medication, what questions do you have about it? 
You know, we as providers, there are clinical practice guidelines that are out there that have been written um, by the American College of Rheumatology that helps us to kind of take into consideration um, disease activity, as well as any comorbidities um, that may impact which choice that we may have for a patient for therapy. So we use that. But there are so many other variables that go into play. Um, so I'm going to shoot it back to you, Cheryl, so that you can ask me a specific question because I could go on oh, all yeah. day. No, I just thought of a, um, a follow-up question as you were talking there. Well, for, okay. First of all, when I shared my face sheet, my, uh, which is what I used as my like condensed, um, medical history to share with like a brand new provider or a new provider to me. Mm -hmm. Um, I, a lot of people said, wait a minute, like, aren't you going to, if, if I brought that to my doctor, my doctor would think I was like a hypochondriac or like, I'm too extra. Like, I think there's this feeling sometimes with this fear because so many of us with autoimmune diseases were treated like hypochondriacs or like, mm -hmm. you're not really sick. You're just anxious. But if I bring like this notebook of information, they're going to just think, oh, she's too much, or they don't actually want that information. What would you say to that? I would say having that information at your fingertips is is very important because how many times have I started asking a question? You know, even if you asked me when, what, what year was it that you had that shoulder surgery? I, I, I honestly can't tell you on the top of my head, but I could um, check into my notebook, into my papers and find that out for some people having that information in one place is, is great because we can nowadays with our electronic medical record, we can scan that into our system and we can have that available to us if there are questions that come up. Um, but, but knowing all the work that goes into preparing um, that, that information really makes you your best advocate, whether or not you share it with your provider, you have it at your fingertips, which is important. I love that. Thank you. I, that, that's how I feel, you know, and if the provider isn't going to receive it, then they maybe they're not the right fit for you either. And they may, you know, they may, uh, you, we don't want to, as patients be presumptuous that like providers have all the time in the world to look at all of our <laughs> detailed records. But if, you know, um, the no knowledge is power and it's good to like have a handle on your own past, you know, history and past records. Absolutely. Yeah. And the next thing that I wanted to ask you about that I've seen a lot of conversations about is, um, and also just, sorry, that's something that I've also observed on social media is that it assessing the risk of medication side effects is something where a lot of people tend to exclusively focus on the negative possibilities and not the benefits, which is so interesting to me because, um, even though I have like a diagnosed anxiety disorder and I tend to be very, you know, nervous and anxious about my health, when it came to the medications for rheumatoid arthritis, there was no hesitation. Like, and it's just, this was exactly, you said 20 years ago. So it's 19 years ago for me, but it was like, I guess my under just self psychoanalyzing myself. I think that, I think the reason for that was that I was, I had been taken not seriously for so long. I had been medically gaslit in a way, you know, to say, you're not sick. You're not sick. And all of a sudden the rheumatologist believed me and said, yes, you are sick. And actually this is a really serious disease and, you know, potentially like taking years off your life if we don't get it under control. And these medicines 
are amazing. And like, we, yes, there's some potential side effects, but we think this is the best option for you to get your disease under control. And I was like, sign me up, give it to me now. Like, you know, but I know from that is not the potentially the norm. Right. So, um, how do you walk people through? Like what I always tell people is like, you have to look at the benefit or the potential of the disease not being controlled. That's a risk too. Right. Um, but again, that's not my, my, that's not my role as an occupational therapist to say that I'm just saying on social media, when we all, you know, the patients kind of like give each other our two cents, you know? Um, so anyway, sorry, <laughs> out of all that rambling, how do you help people walk through that? I mean, there's so much there. So what I would say is that patients with rheumatoid arthritis, for example, those are some of the toughest people I have ever met. They're dealing with their chronic disease on a daily basis, and they've made accommodations and they've learned how to live with their disease. So sometimes it's very hard for them to think past the fact that they are functioning, they are okay, but what if they are that person that has that side effect or risk? And they've gotten themselves into a situation where they, they do poorly. They, that's the unknown. They have the known right now. They just don't have the unknown. So that can be a struggle that I see in a lot of our patients. Also, the idea of undertreatment. Um, this is something that's not understood because for many patients, like I said, they're functioning, they're barely functioning, they're not feeling well, but they're functioning. And they don't understand that there may be ongoing underlying inflammation that's affecting other parts of their body, not just their joints, for example, that the inflammation is systemic or affecting all parts of their body. And the implications of that in the long term, which could result in a reduced lifespan could re result in, you know, decreased quality of life. And, um, it could cause impairments or um, issues with respect to their joints that we can't fix later on. So that's important to consider as well. You know, we as providers, we're not given crystal balls during training. We don't know what's going to happen to a patient if they don't get the medications that we are prescribing and we think that are best, or if their disease goes unchanged or un undertreated. But but we do we do look at various. I guess, variables to understand who needs which medications and which medications might be best for which people. Um, you know, another way I, I like to think of this is sometimes it's a matter of saying, well, by, by agreeing to try this medication, this is a trial. This is a, you know, let's give it three months. Let's see what happens. And, you know, if at the end of the three months, you're not feeling any better, you're not feeling an improvement, then we know that either this is not the medication for you, or this isn't, this isn't worth continuing. But, but by saying yes to something, that's not committing you to a lifetime on this medication. And yeah. sometimes that's the step that people need to hear. It's like our friend, you, I know, you know her more than I do, but Christine said, you know, it's like dating, think about a new medication as like dating and not marriage, you know, <laughs> which I thought was great, you know, and it's, it's still like, I, I want to validate anyone and everyone who is scared to start a medication. Cause I understand, you know, in a way I think I was so, I was in such a low state. Um, you know, I had lost 25 pounds on an 130 pound frame from, you know, severe, what I know now is like rheumatoid cachexia, you know, I was a college athlete who couldn't then suddenly 
or not suddenly, slowly over a year, couldn't open a can of or a, a container of milk. Not can. I don't know what's wrong with me. Like, I, you know, I mean, it was like I was desperate. You know, whereas I think you put it perfectly. You know, there's a lot of people who've learned to function and quote unquote. You know, our society teaches you to push through the pain and just grin and bear it. And I, you know. Um, I did have that conversation with my provider at one point where, you know, um, one of my, my initial biologic had stopped working. And then I, but I was like, you know, I don't mind this level of pain. It's just, it's noticeable, but it's not interfering with my function. But she had to have that exact conversation with me saying, it's not just the question isn't like, a, like an orthopedic injury where you're like, is this pain, am I able to push through or functional with this pain? It's that this pain is a signal of an ongoing systemic inflammation. Like you said, it's affecting your heart and your lungs. And my understanding is that the reason the lifespan for rheumatoid arthritis historically was like approximately seven years less than the average person is due to the cardiovascular effects of the inflammation. So it's not even about how your joints feel. It's the fact that your heart doesn't like, you know, this amount of, um, of inflammation. So understanding those bigger things, it's hard I think it's hard because, you know, it's an invisible condition and we, on the one hand, I think this is just me spitballing <laughs> about my own self, but it's like, it's this weird thing where half the time I feel like I'm like fighting for people to recognize it and acknowledge it. And then the other half of the time, I'm like, it's not that bad, like minimizing it to myself from like a sense of denial, right. you know? Right. So right. it's just, it's like you said, it's complex. <laughs> and I think sometimes patients come to us and they see our level of enthusiasm about these medications and they don't understand that we, we almost look like we're trying to sell something. Why are they so excited about me taking this medication? When in reality, we are very serious and, and about the side effects and risks and trying to mitigate those. Um, but we've also seen the other side of it, you know, especially for some of us who've been in this for a long time and we're practicing before the advent of biologics, we saw patients visit to visit becoming more and more disabled and not being able to do anything about it. And then all of a sudden these medications were developed and now we can put people into medical remission. They can live normal lives. We can prevent the destruction of joints. I mean, that's huge. That's the enthusiasm that you see. Um, it's not that we, we, you know, we're not trying to sell you anything. We really just want our patients to have the best chance of leading a normal life. I love that. And I have a whole episode called like, can you live a normal life with rheumatoid arthritis where, I mean, we um, delve into we, me, myself, and I <laughs> delve into what does it even mean to have a normal life? You know, cause um, you know, a lot of that is kind of our growing up. We kind of have this assumption that like, well, to have a normal life or a good life, I have to be in perfect health. And there's almost kind of like an ableist undertone of that in the same way that it's like, when you're pregnant, everyone's like, as long as it's healthy, as long as it's healthy, you're like, okay, well, what if it's not like, do you know that that is not a guarantee, but anyway, but I, yes, what, what I, what I know from what you're saying is that basically there wasn't a lot that medical providers could do previously for rheumatoid arthritis. It was like, Hey, we can give you some comfort, but we cannot, this is like a train that's on a track that is going towards, you know, disability, dis you know, disfigurement in the form of, you know, progressive joint deformity. And we can't stop this train. Whereas now we're like, Hey, we have these amazing tools that yes, they do sometimes have, you know, severe side effects, but the medic, but the disease has, you know, 
effects as well. I always tell people I'm not scared of the, I'm scared of the disease. That's my primary thing that I'm scared of. And then, yes, I, I'm, I am optimistic about the medications. I am also, you know, again, I have this chart in my head of like the choose your own adventure. I am nervous and about, you know, every time I start a new medication, like I'm on my fourth biologic right now. Um, every time I start a new one, I'm a little bit, you know, it's unknown, but, um, but the, the, the disease is like the enemy versus, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's my, pers- that's my opinion uh, or my perspective. If you have ever felt completely lost or utterly alone while trying to navigate real life with rheumatic disease, listen up. I am here for you. I created an educational program to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported and connected in a matter of weeks. And it's called Room to Thrive. After earning a master's in occupational therapy and completing hundreds of hours of additional training, I created a step-by-step guide to help you truly thrive with rheumatic disease. This is the only program I know of that's designed to improve quality of life for people living with inflammatory autoimmune forms of arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, Sjogren's disease, and more. During the self-paced lessons, you'll learn how to manage pain and fatigue, cope with stress, navigate relationships, and continue doing the things that matter to you and bring you joy. The goal is really to help you improve your quality of life and learn how to thrive with your rheumatic disease right now, rather than waiting for a distant day when it might be cured or healed. I really created the down-to-earth, practical, heartfelt resource I wish I had had when I was first diagnosed at age 20. If you want even more in-depth support, you can join the 12-week Room to Thrive virtual support group where you'll be surrounded by people who actually get what you're going through, people who will provide the encouragement, validation, and support that you deserve. Each group is expertly moderated, so you don't have to worry about the kind of misinformation that spreads like wildfire in the free-for-all social media groups. If you're on the fence, don't just take my word for it. Here's what Katie had to say in March 2023. I was lost and overwhelmed with my RA diagnosis. It felt overwhelming to know what to read, what to do, how to spend my energy trying to research on the internet. Room to Thrive did that for me. It's been like getting a crash course in my diagnosis along with a community who gets it. To see all the details, including the dates for the next support groups, go to the link in the show notes or bit.ly slash thrive room with a capital T in capital R. You can also just email me anytime at info at myarthritislife.net. And don't delay if you're interested because each group is capped at 16 people or less in order to make a small, intimate group atmosphere. Thanks so much for your time. And I can't wait to get started with the next groups. And I can't wait for those of you who are interested in the self-paced option to go ahead and join that at any time. Bye-bye for now. Right. Well, and you know, we as prescribers, we really take into consideration some of the things that help us, that guide us to which therapy is least likely to cause harm and have the best chance of giving somebody a relief of symptoms. And, you know, that goes into screening for any drug interactions or screening for allergies to other medications, looking to see if there's comorbidities that, you know, may be made worse by certain choices of therapies. Um, 
you know, also infectious disease exposures, trying to screen for that ahead of time. Um, but also what's really important, and this is a place where our patients, I feel like they have more control here, maybe don't understand it, but that regular lab monitoring, getting in and getting the labs done as we're asking is so important because we can see, you know, changes or we can see hints of things going awry uh, faster if we're getting those labs done. And, and, that's that's so important for us. Um, and I don't think patients understand because it's a hassle, it's a cost, um, but it is very important for safety as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I think during COVID, it's just been hard to like, you know, get yourself physically out anywhere when you, you don't are so nervous about exposures. I'm like, Oh, I right. wish that Theranos thing had been <laughs> true where you could, you know, not yeah. Anyway, but, but you're, you're right. I mean, I'm always, I've been on methotrexate for 19 years and I've never had any abnormal, you know, liver blood work. And I'm like, I'm just like waiting for the day. Cause I'm like, how am I so lucky? You know, but it's like, mm -hmm. that's, but the, but the monitoring makes me, um, you know, makes me, gives me that peace of mind that, okay, things, you know, not, not necessarily that everything that's potentially bad shows up in the routine blood work, but that, that I know my providers, you know, can check on whatever, you know, might be, um, lingering or not lingering. What's the word, something that might be simmering under the surface. Right. And, and then also, you know, during the visits, when you see us, we're asking, we give you these questionnaires that have 10,000 questions on them. Mm -hmm. One of them is asking about disease activity almost always, but another aspect of that is trying to find out if there's something that could be a potential side effects to, to the medication. Like, have you developed a new cough, for example, or do you have new bruising? Some things like this that could, could indicate to us that we need to be thinking about safety and the medications that you've been prescribed. Yeah. And, you know, I happen to know a little more about the health system because I, you know, am an OT and I actually, I used to work in UW MHR at UW Medical Center um, back when U UW and Hoverview were separate. But, um, but so one thing I do want to say for the record, and I, I know you can probably say this more eloquently than I can, but that in any individual provider in the United States, like who's giving medication is not getting any kickback or it's illegal for you to get a kickback from the drug companies. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. The enthusiasm that you see is strictly that we are excited to give, be given the chance to give you a medication to feel better. Yeah. Absolutely. And what I mean by kickbacks is like, in I don't know how long ago this was, but our compliance officer at UW used to give this long, like walk through medical ethics hall of shame where, you right. know, I'm sorry, all the examples were from Florida. I'm sorry. Those in Florida, but, you know, people being like, Oh, you know, the drug companies in the old days, not now, or it's not legal now to yeah. be like, Oh, if you give my, if you prescribe my medicine, then we'll give you every time you prescribe it to a new patient, we'll give you some amount of money. And that does not, I mean, or I shouldn't, I shouldn't say it doesn't happen. That is not, um, that's illegal, you know? And so it is not the norm that, um, in our, in our country and the yeah, USA. And the, right. And the sunshine act from years ago that was, um, enacted specifically was to bring that out into the open so that anybody can look up their prescriber and see what conflicts of interest they may have. Um, mm. So right. that's, that's always, that's great that it's out there. I, I think that protects everybody. Absolutely. You know, speaking of cost, I think that's yeah. one of the biggest struggles that we as providers have when we're trying to choose a therapy. And, you know, Cheryl, you and I met when we went um, to Washington, D.C. together to advocate on behalf of patients with rheumatic disease. 
I just got back a couple of days ago from Washington, D.C., and one of the things that we were there talking about um, was something called copay accumulators. Are you aware of those? Because I wasn't until I showed up to Washington, no. D.C. Tell me about right. them. Do I want to know? This stresses me out so much. No, but we have to know. Knowledge is power. I know. It's so frustrating. Well, we're really fortunate in Washington State. Washington State is one of the few states that has um, enacted legislation to protect um, patients against the use of these copay accumulators, which are systems set up by drug um, by um, pharmaceutical, um, by your insurance companies to help um, basically fill their pockets. So um, basically when back in the day when, you know, we know that these medications that we prescribe are expensive, sometimes prohibitively expensive. Um, and uh, so initially the manufacturers developed something called copay cards. These were like coupons that would give a patient back a portion of how much they were required to pay each time they filled their prescriptions, right? Yeah. And when you say manufacturers, you mean the pharmaceutical? Is pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical manufacturers, yeah, right. Yeah. So if you were prescribed an injectable biologic, for example, you may, maybe if your copay was $50 each time you refilled your medication, maybe it would pay $25 of that $50, for example. And, and so sometimes that was enough that our patients were able to afford these medications. Um, and recently, because of all the issues with the lack of transparency with insurance companies and what they cover and what they don't cover, there's been the development of what they call copay accumulators. Insurance companies are now saying that because that $25 did not come specifically out of the patient's pocket, it doesn't count towards their copay. So it reduces overall the insurance company's debt for paying for that medication but doesn't reduce the patient's costs, out-of-pocket out costs. And it really just goes against what we were trying to, to help, which is make it so that these medications, which can be so expensive, are less expensive for our patients. So, you know, if you're in, if I would highly recommend that you contact um, your legislature um, to talk to them about this. Right now, there's a bill in the House. It's HR 5801. Um, it's just in the beginning stages, but um, this is just another way that insurance companies are really reducing the ability of our patients to get the medications that, that they need to treat their disease effectively. Yeah, that's so frustrating. It's like, what will, what will they think of next? If, if they use all that creativity towards actually helping people, <laughs> the world would be a better place, but they're using it. Toward, that's why we don't, I don't like a profit motivated healthcare system. It's just never in my mind. I don't see how that could ever benefit the patients because it's not profitable to have a health condition. You know what I mean? Yeah, so. And patients are, are frustrated. I mean, understandably. Yeah. So they think that we as providers should know which medication, what each medication costs for each patient. But unfortunately, patients have so many different insurance carriers and then individual plans within those carriers. And each plan has a different preferred agent or a different set of rules that they go by that patients must do this, this, and this before they get this medication. And the cost of this medication is this much, this one's this much. We, we can't possibly know all of that. And so that is one of my biggest frustrations. It's really tedious and challenging for a patient, but on the back of their insurance card, there's a phone number and you can call it and you can find out of the medications that are used to treat your autoimmune condition, 
what are the costs for each of these medications, the out-of-pocket costs? Um, what's a preferred agent over another? Is there a tier plan? Is there a step therapy? Is it better for you to get a medication by, by IV, which is typically covered under your medical benefit, than it is for you to receive a self-injectable biologic, which is covered under your pharmaceutical benefit. Having that information, though it's tedious and difficult to obtain, and I, and so I would argue that sometimes it's intentionally so difficult, um, having that information as you talk to your prescriber, your provider, is huge because that will help us make that decision together. Um, because the last thing that we want is to choose this medication that we think is going to be best. And then for you to try to get it and you can't even get the medication because of the cost. It's, it's so frustrating. And it's even happening where now where um, people will have taken a medication for a number of months or even years. And then all of a sudden their insurance carrier decides, well, we're going to try to save some money. So we actually, we're not approving you on this anymore, even though you've taken it and it's worked. And it's such a slap in the face to patients, you know, but like you're, I think that you're providing a really helpful insight to patients. Cause I mean, I, you're, you're right. That I think, you know, if you don't have an experience in healthcare, you would think, well, okay, I'll just ask, I'm at the doctor's office. Like I gave them my insurance card. They should just know, oh, it's like, in my case, it's regents. Okay. Just look up regents. Well, regents is not just one thing. Like you said, they have for every single company, you know, cause it's through your employer. Typically, um, they have negotiated their own rates and their own, it's very, very complex. And so it's, it, everyone is frustrated. So I think sometimes, um, and this is one of the things I, I dislike on social media, little soapbox, but that people can, you know, first of all, we should call out anyone who's being inhumane or not ethical should be, you know, of course, call, call them out. But sometimes there can be a little bit of an us versus them dynamic of like the patients versus the providers. And I'm like, listen, people, it's all of us versus the insurance companies in the U S no, no. I mean, it's funny. I was actually saying that to my therapist and he was like, I, he's a psychiatrist. He's like, I can't believe I'm actually going to do this, but I'm going to try to the, he's like, for the sake of objectivity, I'm going to take the perspective of the insurance. I was like, no, he's like, I can't believe I'm doing this. I don't know how I could, how could, he's like, he's afraid that it's like, they are trying to not necessarily. Okay. I don't know. I don't, I don't even want, I, I still don't, I can't take necessarily their point, point of view entirely, but, um, you know, there is a problem of, you know, cost being out of control and you would want to like, for example, you know, if, if, a $20,000 a year medication were as effective for a patient as an $800 a year medication, you know, right. if they're the same effectiveness, no problem to save the healthcare system money or the insurance company money. I think the problem mm -hmm. is when they're so clearly motivated by saving money that they're saying, actually, we want you to take this less effective, cheaper drug. And it, it's just, to me, the relationship between patient and provider is so sacred. And like, I respect like the years of training that you have and then to have someone who, who have, who's never met me, never seen my case, doesn't know me, you know, and doesn't know you come in from the insurance company and be like, I reviewed your file. And I decided that you need to take this other medicine. Like, who are you? Like, why are you able to say anything? You know, so sorry, this is just me going off. But, um, but you know, if you're struggling, so anyone listening, sometimes when I'm struggling with something, I think, is this a hard problem or am I just not looking at it right? 
it is a hard problem <laughs> there. <laughs> if you're struggling with figuring out how to get your medication covered, um, it's not you it's the system is designed okay. to be difficult. So how, yeah. So you mentioned how that they can research the cost. People can research the cost of their med potential medicines by calling their insurance company. And what, what kind of patient assistant programs are, are out there? So as I said, there are copay cards for most of the medications, um, especially if your state doesn't allow the copay accumulators as part of this issue. Um, and those can help reduce the costs. Um, there are also often patient assistance programs. Um, those typically require patients to have um, documented certain income level. And if you're within that income level, um, then you may qualify. And it's, it's a lot higher than I think most of our patients um, would think, because we know that these medications are really expensive. Nobody really has an extra $1,000 a month to be able to pay for medication. Um, so those so checking out to see if you qualify um, under those uh, patient assistance programs. And then I would also say that some hospitals um, also have charity programs, which um, you may qualify for as well, that would help to reduce you receiving, reduce the cost of a certain medication, for example, IV medications. And that can be something to look into as well. Yeah. Awesome. And I know that um, I wanted to circle back, sorry, to the yeah. role of different people in, in the like rheumatology office, because I know, for example, when I go to see my rheumatologist, there is a medical assistant that checks me in or, or sorry, there's the, well, the front desk person who has no medical training, you know, of course they just check me in and they're the one that does the scheduling. And then there's the medical assistant who comes in, like takes your blood pressure and everything like that. This is going to circle back to what we're talking about with medication. But then there's also sometimes instead of the medical assistant, it's a, it's a nurse, like the rheumatology nurse doing my blood pressure and my vitals before the doctor comes in. And then the doctor, the, the rheumatologist comes in. And then later on, when I have other questions, sometimes the, the nurse is the one that answers them. And so she's the one that helps with the access. Like when I was on Remicade, I had the Remicade copay card. So in, so in the room, which I know it depends on the clinics, but something that I've heard through my advocacy work is that so many um, providers are being taken away from their clinical jobs in order to have to spend so much time doing all this paperwork for insurance and everything. Is that something where typically is it like, is there a social worker in-house that helps with this? Is it nurse? Is it just whoever? Just, you know what I'm saying? Right, right. So I come from a unique background, Cheryl. I don't know if you know this about me, but I started working in the clinical, in the clinic setting when I was in high school. So I, Whoa. I know I was a CNA. I was, um, I was a medical assistant uh, for years and years. Then I went and did my uh, licensed practical nurse degree, my registered nurse, then I got my master's degree and my doctorate in nursing. So I've been working in clinics since I was 17. Amazing. I've done a little bit of everything. I've answered the phones. I've done the prior authorizations. I did the billing. I, you know, I, I worked in the lab, um, taking blood and doing some basic tests. I, I even did some x-ray imaging. I was, I was the one pushing that button too. And, um, <laughs> I mean, I've really done a little bit of everything. Um, 
certainly nowadays, the number of patients that require these prior authorizations, it's not simply a matter of just filling out a piece of paper and sending it back. Oftentimes, um, we have to look through a patient chart to determine when they took a medication for how long. And then, you know, you have to fulfill all these requirements and you have to send in documentation of that. In each clinic, whoever does that is going to be different. Um, thankfully, where I am right now, that's not me. I will help out and I will try my very best to make sure that my chart notes support my reason for choosing a certain medication, whether it's comorbidities or things that they've done in the past, etc. Um, but in my clinic, my medical assistant is the one that does all of my prior authorizations. And in fact, whenever there's a problem, she's right there and I can, I can ask her, Dana, help, what, what's happening here? I, I need to know. Um, I think that varies clinic to clinic. Um, but there's also others within our clinic that specifically look at the IV medications and um, those prior authorization processes because those are different. So it really varies, but, but I would say that this prior authorization issue um, is huge. And the amount of time and hours that it takes to get medications approved for our patients that we've prescribed, it's not the ordering, but it's the downsides of all of the paperwork that happens after that is, is just tremendous. I can't believe how much that skyrocketed just in the last five years. Yeah. And when we say the words prior authorization, I think most patients might've heard that before, but what, what does it actually mean? So for example, if I was to prescribe you an antibiotic for a sinus infection, for example, typically you would go to the pharmacy, the prescription would be waiting and you'd pick it up. Nobody really questions whether or not you need a certain antibiotic for that sinus infection. As long as I've documented, that's the diagnosis. You just go and get it. For the medications that we prescribe in rheumatology, um, I've they're, they're, as soon as we prescribe a medication, it goes to a pharmacy. Um, it may not be the pharmacy that your insurance company wants you to get it through. So we think it's this pharmacy. Then it may get back to us that no, instead it has to go to another pharmacy. So then we would then find out which pharmacy that is, send it to another pharmacy. Um, and then the pharmacy has, um, your insurance company will dictate you can have this medication if you fulfill these criteria. And some of those criteria are really reasonable, but they're things that we're, we're doing anyway. Criteria may be that you've been screened for infectious diseases and that that's documented, um, that you have a certain diagnosis and that's documented. These are parts of what we do as prescribers anyway. Um, but then we have to document that and make sure that, that those boxes get checked. And then they will, um, then depending on insurance companies and the medication that's prescribed, um, it may be then, um, have you tried this medication and or this medication and or this medication for at least this period of time? And was there a lack of efficacy or was there a side effect associated with it? And if there's a side effect, what is, what is it? So then we have to go back and answer those questions. Um, and so it's this back and forth, back and forth. Um, and it's not typically by email. This is by good old fashioned facts. Oh my Oftentimes. Gosh. So, yeah. you know, you can see where this delaying um, then makes it so you can't get that medication right away. It may take weeks for you to get that medication because of all the back and forth that happens. Yeah, no. And that's a really, that's a good explanation. I think, yeah, the 
it's everything's so complex. We really, everyone needs to like, um, well, obviously I created my own course, you know, which is there's almost like everyone who gets diagnosed with one of these conditions needs to just get like, go to school, like a school of <laughs> arthritis, arthritis school, you know, or like figuring out just, right. this is not even about the complexity of like making medical decisions and stuff. It's about like, just understanding the logistics. Like I remember, you know, like you were saying specialty pharmacy. Yeah. I'm so used to like, okay, my whole life, the example you gave exactly, you know, get a, you have a sinus infection or strep throat, you go to your local Walgreens or this pharmacy and you get your prescription. I was so confused when it was like, oh, you have to go to the specialty pharmacy. And it's actually not really a place you can go to. It's like a phone, like you call them on the phone and they make you go through all these things. And then you finally, it like gets delivered to you, but it's, it's temperature controlled. So you have to put it in the fridge and it's like, whoa, like all this, you know, stuff to learn. And I remember when I was just to give another example about this, when I was um, looking at graduate school for occupational therapy, I either, well, there's a lot of variables because I was just dating my husband at the time and he had gotten a job in California that he really wanted. So I applied to school in California and local. So I was comparing like University of Washington with like in-state tuition and all that stuff to like a private school in California. And, but anyway, but one of the major variables financially was, you know, medications and, so I tried to figure out, you said, call the insurance company. Well, the problem is if you're looking at a decision in the future, like I'm going to be either at X university or X university, they cannot tell me like with the student insurance insurance plan, the insurer won't tell me over the phone. They can't, they can't say like, I didn't know whether my, I, and I, at that point, I guess I didn't understand that like the Remicade, um, I was on Remicade at the time that the assistance, the copay assistance thing was going to cover it probably no matter where I went. I didn't, I had so much anxiety about that. And I was like, I felt so, it's such an impotent feeling to feel like I don't even, I can't even get the information like to even make this decision, like, you know, in-state tuition, but with a $40,000 a year medication is not the same financially as an out-of-state, you know, private school tuition, but with a $25 copay for your medication. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, um, it's just such a significant source of stress, you know, for mm -hmm. patients, um, regardless of whether you have any fears about the medication, I mean that if you have fears about medication, of course, this is going to tip you over the edge, right? <laughs> right? My goodness. Right. I mean, I think that's what we're up against and that's part of why. So every month that a med every day that a patient isn't getting the medication that we've prescribed, and especially an expensive medication, is a reduced cost to your insurance company. Yeah. And that's what's frustrating. And it also is another day that inflammation is happening in somebody's body. And so that's the other side of it. I, I get so frustrated um, because I feel like this shouldn't take so long for our medications, for our patients to get on the right medications, that there shouldn't be so many hurdles, but there really are. And I guess, you know, I just, I, I really encourage patients to really put in that extra effort to try to figure out the complexities and the, the lack of transparency that your insurance company has put up 
call, find out what their estimations of costs are, what their tier program is, what's their preferred medications for the diagnosis that you have, um, and try to understand that. And then again, work with your provider's office, find out who the person is who can help navigate with you, partner with you from that point moving forward. Um, but having that information and going to your provider, your prescriber for that will set you up to be successful and to help reduce some of those roadblocks that get put up. Yes, I, I love that. And I would say just one more thing to add. I feel I should, I try to be like, see everyone's point of view. Like I was saying earlier, it's hard for me with insurance companies with this issue, but the people who are talking to you on the phone, you as the patient are not the ones that are the high level executives making these decisions, you know, that are profiting millions of dollars. They're employees who are just you know, trying to do a job. And so yeah. I do try to remember to just be like, you know, this person, it's not their fault that this is happening. I'm frustrated. And I might <laughs> convey that frustration through my tone of voice occasionally, but also be like, okay, you're going to, sometimes you're going to catch more flies with honey, you know, than yes. vinegar. So the thing, other thing that I've really, um, really benefited from with my insurance company is the ability to have a, a text-based chat with them versus a phone call. Because hmm. what I like about ch the chat is that you can save it afterwards. And so you have everything in writing and they save it too. So there's no ambiguity of like, well, you said this, or you said that, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so that is something I think that's, that's helpful that at least my insurance company has provided. But yeah, knowing, understanding the system, you know, quote unquote, the system, it's not really even a system. It's like a bunch of overlapping, separate, unrelated systems yeah. um, is, is empowering. Yeah. As a patient. So yeah. yeah. And, and then I would say support reform, you know, reach out to your legislators and let them know about the challenges that you are having on a regular basis, getting your medications and how we need to reform this, um, the, the, the insurance, the insurance coverage and reduce costs for our patients and, and really help out in the long run. That's so important. They need to hear from us. They need to hear how people are struggling on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, it's very cathartic to share your story. I mean, I know that for some people it's like, that's more emotional and cognitive labor. And it is, it's more work for you, but it's at least can be going through being part of a solution potentially. And, and you don't have to do that on your own. You don't have to literally sit there like with a, with like an email open on your browser being like, what do I say to them? You know, there's the American College of Rheumatology, Arthritis Foundation, Creaky Joints, a lot of nonprofits have put together resources. Like, and that's how I went to Washington, D.C., with American College of Rheumatology, you know, so I'll put some links in the show notes to ways to get involved. Because every time I've talked about this, like on my social media channels, people are always like, oh my gosh, I want to do that. Like, how do I, you know, do I that? believe that they're opening up the application soon for the Advocates for Arthritis um, oh, to okay. attend in September, and hopefully it'll be in person. Um, mm, but that usually, that usually opens up around this time and they love, love, love and need patients, um, to come in and share their stories. Um, it shouldn't yeah. be intimidating, um, but they want to hear from you. I love it. Thank you. That's awesome. And, you know, just as we start kind of wrapping up a little bit, I know we could talk all day, but, um, one of my favorite questions to ask anyone, whether they're a patient themselves or a health provider is, you know, what are some words of encouragement or tips that you find really helpful for newly diagnosed? Cause the newly diagnosed population is like so near and dear to my heart, you know, cause it's just such a, it's such an overwhelming time. 
what are some gems of wisdom? <laughs> Not to put yeah. pressure on you. <laughs> right, right. Um, I think I, I, what I would say is that there's a lot of hope in, in the newly diagnosed um, patient arena. I think it can feel very overwhelming but realize that we do have this plethora of different therapies available. And that whereas in with many chronic diseases, um, oftentimes, you know, the focus is not on helping you feel better. Really in rheumatology, we're trying to put you into remission. We're trying to make your um, condition go into the background. Um, to not define you so that you can live as normal of life as possible. Um, and, and so we're working as a partner with you to try to do that. And I think that's the biggest thing is to have this hope. And if something's not working, if you're having a problem, then we need to hear from you. We're your, we should be your partner. Um, we, we are really excited when we get newly diagnosed patients because we know we can make you feel better. We just have to find out what it is, which therapy it is, is your secret sauce. I, I love that. And it's like, I mean, it does link back to the medication coverage discussion, because one of the things that, that I find frustrating with the insurance denials is that, that you have that critical period, you know, early on in your disease where you're most, most likely to go into remission, right? Is there like a time period? I, I think I read somewhere six months where it's like, if you get early aggressive treatment within X months or X years, that's the time. Do you know that statistic off the top of your head? You know, you're right. It is, it is the sooner, the better basically is yeah. what we know. And if, if we can, if we can quickly diagnose, get a diagnosis and quickly um, in, initiate treatment to get somebody into clinical remission, the chances of them developing disabling deformities or chronic issues um, are much reduced. And in some cases, and this is what's so exciting, and this is where we're going with all of this, is seems to almost reset that, that clock, so to speak, of, of the immune system dysfunction. And, you know, our hope is that down the road, we then may be able to withdraw some of the medications if we can get somebody into early remission. That's what the irony is that, yeah, you're actually most like in the, if your goal in like 10 years is to be on no medicine, your best bet potentially is to go aggressively on medication initially, but that's so un unintuitive. Most people in their, in, you know, your logic would say, okay, well, I'm going to, or this is what I hear a lot of people saying, again, this is not in a clinical setting for me, but more like a social media conversation, you know, setting people say, well, I want to try diet and exercise first. And if that doesn't work, I'm going to try medication. And it's like, that sounds so logical. And if you don't know the research, <laughs> but you're like, right. but diet and exercise alone does not have anywhere near the level of evidence as the medications. And so then if, and then you're starting the medications at, in a worse physical state, which makes you, is that right? I'm sorry. You tell yeah, me if I'm no, yeah. It's exactly right. I think that we used to, it, they used to talk about this as the pyramid treatment. So, you know, you would, you would start with the least expensive, the easiest medication, some of that diet and exercise things that we know can make a benefit. And certainly in patients with very mild disease, maybe, maybe that's all they'll need. Mm -hmm. But what we found is then we would wait and next visit, if it wasn't enough, we, you know, 
maybe change things. And slowly we'd get to that top of the pyramid, which is the most aggressive therapy. And, you know, in the last 15, 20 years with the invention of these biologic therapies, they talk about inverting that pyramid where we aggressively treat these diseases, these inflammatory conditions initially so that we can get somebody under control and then if, and then withdraw therapy, if, if it's not needed or reduce therapy, um, reduce to, you know, different doses or reduce the number of therapies just so that patients can, can feel better without developing the destructions that can happen so quickly in, in joints that are undertreated. Yeah. And uh, when you were talking earlier about the, the the hope for the newly diagnosed, one thing I tell people when they say, well, it seems like everyone I talk to with rheumatoid arthritis isn't in remission. And there's all these studies that are like, so many people are going to remission. Well, I don't talk to them on social media. And it's like, what I tell them is, well, first of all, in social media, it didn't necessarily exist when I first got diagnosed, but when I was in medicated remission for seven years, I wasn't talking about my condition very much. And it wasn't because I was ashamed of it. I mean, I just, it didn't, I was in remission. I was living my life. Like you said, as close to a quote unquote normal life as I, as could be expected for someone in their twenties. And so there is sometimes like the, again, a side, I am always thinking about social media. Cause that's like where I inhabit my, my social participation these days, but, um, is that there can be a silent majority that's there. You're not seeing them because they're not, they're not in your community, but they're there. They are there in the world. They're just not necessarily, they're not going to Facebook groups to get support. They're not talking about it and processing it. So that's something that I try to remind people about um, that you're not seeing them but they are there, you know, it's they hard are. to convince people. They're like, what? You sound, you sound insane. Like, well, I mean, you, you, you hear it. People say you can't advocate for others until you take care of yourself. Mm. And that's what's happening in that situation is people have taken care of themselves and now their passions and their struggles are for their children or mm -hmm. for their parents or they're there. They may be online you know, talking about other things like swing dancing. That's what I was talking about. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it's, I really like that you mentioned the pyramid because, um, you know, if you go on the Institute of lifestyle medicine, um, or like the association for lifestyle medicine, I don't know if you've heard of this or, you know, but lifestyle medicine is, is, is about that pyramid. And it's like, the reason I know about lifestyle medicine partly is obviously as a patient, I'm interested in it, but it's, and obviously, and as an occupational therapist, it's very congruent with our practice, which, because we don't prescribe, you know, medications, we are about the lifestyle factors, the things like, um, you know, that your daily roles and your daily routines and habits, things you do to manage stress, exercise, Absolutely. nutrition, sleep, those all are really important, but I, that pyramid, the lifestyle medicine pyramid is always rubbing the wrong way because it's, it's prioritizing um, the lifestyle factors in saying almost positioning medications is like, this is the last resort. Like these are oh. terrible. And you're like, I think with certain conditions it applies, but in other conditions, you have to look at a condition by condition basis. And again, like I'm very aware and I've shared on the podcast, the, the evidence of things like, you know, addressing the gut microbiome and stuff like that. It's all very exciting, yeah. but in, in the current evidence is, you know, that, the medications are, like you said, the primary thing and, uh, that it's going to be on a population level, most likely to be effective. It doesn't mean for an individual, like you said, if one individual has a mild case might do great with a vegan diet or something else, but that doesn't mean that that pyramid should be taken as like gospel 
the, the lifestyle medicine pyramid. So, yeah. And, and I would also mention that we know that the lifestyle medicines, those are healthy habits, but it yeah. is very difficult to make healthy habit changes in our lives and nearly impossible for somebody who is overwhelmed with their disease and they have overwhelming fatigue and pain. It's very difficult to make those changes successfully. So allow the medications to do their job to reduce your inflammation and also engage some of those lifestyle changes that will help you be a healthier person in the long run. Yeah, I, I love that. Yeah. And there's a lot of, unfortunately, there's a lot of kind of toxic messaging in the kind of um, lifestyle medicine, you know, arena or like that, like not everyone has the money or the time to like go shopping at Whole Foods every single day and like go to like five different kinds of exercise classes. You know, it's like take people where they're at, you know? So anyway, yeah, lots of soapboxes, but actually, since I have a little, I have you for a tiny bit longer, I did want to ask sometimes what I like to ask my very expert providers is, um, is there anything like late breaking or new, new developments? I I didn't tell you this ahead of time. So totally, if, if you don't have anything on the top of your head, that's fine. But is there anything kind of new and exciting in the field of rheumatology, um, that, that you're excited about, like new kinds of treatments. Like I keep hearing about like vagus nerve stimulation or like, you know, all kinds of different stuff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm always excited about this every year we have our, um, national rheumatology meeting in November. And I love it because I always leave really invigorated and excited knowing kind of what's on the horizon. Um, I would say that, I felt like like 10 years ago, everywhere you turn, there was a study about rheumatoid arthritis. And, and as a result, you've seen all these different um, medications that target inf- different inflammatory cytokines. We have this plethora of therapies available now to treat our patients with rheumatoid arthritis. We can make you feel better, right? That's so cool. And then I would say maybe about five years ago, this same thing happened with psoriatic arthritis. Everywhere you turn, there was another study about psoriatic arthritis and the different treatments. And again, now we're starting to see these therapies being approved. I would say we're on the cusp right now with lupus. Finally, like how many years did we go? We went 20 years without a therapy approved for, for lupus. Um, you know, we, we are starting now to understand what drives some of that inflammation in this very challenging condition. It's so heterogeneous. It's so different person to person in the way that it's going to affect somebody. It's a challenge to really develop, effectively develop therapies um, to treat these conditions. And now we're starting to understand that. So I think that in the next five years, you're just going to see an explosion of therapies for our lupus patients, which will translate to better outcomes for them in the long run which is so sorely needed right now. That is extremely exciting. Yeah. I had heard a few murmurs about it, but I try, it's like, I have this weird reaction where I'm like, I don't want to get too excited. You know what I mean? <laughs> because I've heard, right, so, right. Like, you know, and it's so cute, but like my husband or my you know mom will sometimes, my mom listens to the podcast. My husband doesn't, but <laughs> so I'm like, hi mom, but she'll send me things. And then I, I always want to receive them. Right. I want you, if anyone's thinking about, you know, sees anything about rheumatoid arthritis, but you know, if you look into the weeds, sometimes it's like in one mouse, in one trial, and you're like, shoot, darn it. Like that's going to be like 15 years before it might, you know, actually help me. But, um, but that's exciting about, about lupus. It really is, um, just, yeah, it's, it's such a difficult one. Um, and I, I feel for all the lupus warriors. So if you're listening and you have lupus, I hope that's, that's good news. 
Um, is there anything else, you know, that you'd like to share with the audience before we wrap up? <laughs> you know, I could go on and on and on. Yeah. So Cheryl, what I would say is if you ever need me back and you want to talk about something in particular, I'm more than happy to help out um, and answer any questions. There's, there's just, we, I've been doing this for 20 years. We could go on all day mm-hmm. about the challenges and, and the things to help patients on their day-to-day life. So thank you for what you do. Thank you for spreading the word. Um, you're amazing. I love your enthusiasm. Oh, thank, that's funny. Cause yeah, I actually called my first website was called the enthusiastic life. And, and that's, I made that in like 2010. And it's funny because, um, yeah, that is my core personality, but you know, chronic illness can take it out of you. And there was a time when I had a bunch of things going on health-wise, not, not only the rheumatoid arthritis, but, um, but also like three different acute health things, including like a car accident and a terrible oh, case yeah. of SIBO, like small intestine bacterial overgrowth oh. and a pilonidal cyst all in like an eight month period. And, um, I, I was like, I don't feel enthusiastic. This is like 2017. I don't, I don't have anything left. You know, it was just, it was a really hard time. So I, the reason I'm sharing that is I remind myself that sometimes like, sometimes you have to remind yourself of like when you were at kind of the rock, you know, bottom, because then you're like, this is, it's just, it's, it, I feel for those who feel like your chronic illness has like robbed you of part of who you are. Do you know what I mean? Um, because I got, I got there through not just the chronic illness, but the acute illnesses on top of it. But I know others, all it takes is one, you know, one diagnosis, lupus or psoriatic or ankylosing or rheumatoid to just take it out of, take your enthusiasm out of you. So I hope that, you know, if you, if you've lost it, you can get it back or it is possible to get it back because it happened with me. So, um, anyway, sorry, that was such a long, (laughs) that's why I have my own podcast. I could just talk about whatever I want, but, (laughs) but thank you for acknowledging my enthusiasm. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a treasure. So keep it dear. I try. I try. I'm, I'm 40. I'm not, I'm not learning to be embarrassed yet. So I'm like, like, how do you put Cheryl, how do you put yourself out there? I'm like, I just do because I have no shame. Um, so, um, is there anywhere people can find speaking of no, no shame? Are you publicly on social media or is there anywhere people can find you online or no, it's okay. If you have boundaries, you know, I actually, so I am that generation X. So yeah. I live, you know, I was during that time before we had all of these computers and social media. And now I've seen how it's changed our lives. And, and I, I will embarrassingly say, I don't think I have much of a social presence. Okay. Although my name is, is unique. So it's really easy to find me online. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no other famous person with my name. So um, <laughs> you can certainly find me. Um, but but I do try to stay most engaged through the American College of Rheumatology and then through the University of Washington, where I'm a professor and a clinician. So um, I'm, I'm here in real life. Um, yeah, no, that's wonderful. And I'm like, I was born in 1981. So I'm like, they call it like an elder millennial, you know, because I'm like, I do actually identify like I, with Gen X in many ways, because I mean, there was no technology in, in my childhood, you know, other than, I mean, TV, right. 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 You would fight with your brother and sister over the TV, you know, there's four channels or whatever. And, you know, you would, you know, but, but, but then by the time I was in grad school, you know, 2010 to 2012, the world had really changed. Oh yeah. 
I didn't Absolutely. have my first cell phone though. I didn't have a smartphone until after, or I didn't even have a cell phone. Much like the smartphones didn't exist when I graduated undergrad in 2004. But I mean, I would call my boyfriend from the, you know, the, the hallway phone at the dorm room, you know, calling with a calling card, like, oh, we yes. have five minutes left on the calling. Yeah. You know, so it's funny. I feel like I have like a foot planted in each generation, but anyway, but yeah, I respect that. I'm always like intrigued by people. Like my sister also doesn't have any social media and I'm like, what's it like? <laughs> I'll send her TikToks and she's like, what are you doing? But anyway, um, but you know, we all, we are all who we are, who we are. But I always just ask people at the end if there's, you know, because that way, if someone's listening, like, oh, I want to find her. Um, they can find you, you know, on, on, uh, the UW, you know, website. Um, and yeah, I just, I really appreciate everything that you do. Um, I mean, I know that being, I, I was just an adjunct faculty member at, at, a um, Lake Washington Institute of Technology in the OT assistant program, but that's so much work. So being a professor, a full professor, you know, at a doctorate program, I cannot imagine how much work that is on top of, you know, doing all the volunteer work you do and the advocacy through the American College of Rheumatology and your clinical work. So, I mean, the fact that you still, after all these years, have so much enthusiasm and passion for improving people's quality of life is very inspirational to me. So thank you. <laughs> I'll try and keep up that enthusiasm. I'm, don't forget, I'm also raising two teenagers. So that's oh my God. the energy oh, out of boy. you. <laughs> is that the hardest thing that you do in all of your roles? Right now? Yes. Okay. Oh, sorry. Absolutely. <laughs> I live. Yeah. I, okay. I'm going to have to talk to you offline about that. Cause I'm always, like, Charlie's only eight, but like every single day I have this, like what my older therapist before I saw my current one um, would call like She's like, you think that it's going to help you when you have preventative anxiety. Like I'm being, I'm already anxious about his teenage years. He's only eight. And she's like, you're going to spend so much time when he's eight worrying about his teenage years. And there's no reason to worry, by the way. It's just my nature is that I want to, right, right, right. I'm like, had this perfect, innocent child. Like there's no way he's ever going to turn into a teenager. Right. Like I told him yesterday, I don't want to grow. I don't want you to grow up. And that's so inappropriate for me to say, but um, like, cause I'm like, I don't want to put any pressure on him, you know, to, I mean, he's like, no, I don't want to either. I don't want to, then he goes, I don't want to get a job. I just want to live with you forever. It's like, oh, it's so cute. Anyway, but yeah, yeah, no, I appreciate it. Yeah. And you have a dog, a beautiful dog. If you're watching the video version of this two that's that's the two. that's oh. the COVID puppy that somebody else adopted that couldn't take care of so we just adopted her oh. and she she just looks so terribly difficult doesn't she I know yeah she's <laughs> a nightmare <laughs> but anyway well thank you so much again yeah. we will do yeah. this again I hope <laughs> absolutely thank you bye-bye for now bye thank you so much for listening to another episode of the arthritis life podcast this episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, an educational program I created from scratch to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks. You can go through the pre-recorded course on your own, or you can take the course along with a support group. Learn more at the link in my show notes, or you can always go to www.myarthritislife.net. And if you like this podcast, I would be so honored if you took the time to rate and review it. I also encourage you to share it with anyone you know who might benefit from it. I also wanted to remind you that you can find full transcripts, videos, and detailed show notes with hyperlinks for each episode on my website, www.myarthritislife.net. If you have any ideas for future episodes, or if you want to share your story or wisdom on the podcast, just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you.